Our lives are shaped by the stories we believe to be true. So what's your story? Does it have a plot? Does it have a hero? Does it have a narrator who around the twists and turns of your life whispers, little did she know? Does your story have any meaning? How will your story end? What story are you in? You know, in the early chapters of our stories, we quickly learn that life is much about fitting in, finding friends, and finding something you're good at. And we move on. But is that enough for you, those of you in the early chapters? Is there more to life than finding friends and fitting in? What's your story? For those of us in the middle chapters of our lives, you know, uh, everything looks pretty good on paper, especially here where we live. You, you've maybe got a spouse that you love, a house that you like, kids that you like and love, and a good car, a good job, good friends. But you ask in midlife, is this all there is? And is that enough? What story are you in? And then in the later chapters of life, the kids have moved on and are well into their stories. They don't seem to need you as much as they used to. Your job is winding down. Your body is wearing down. And you're asking, can I get more time? What happens next? At the end of this story. Or, you know, I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but let's just say a couple years ago you were on an airplane and it was taking off from New York City and all of a sudden you hear what you don't hear, namely the engines of the airplane. And a calm voice comes on the intercom and says, we're going to have to make an emergency landing in the Hudson River. Brace yourselves. Is there anyone outside the plane you talk to for whom you do not need a cell phone. What's your story? Welcome to Waterstone. We're here to pump you up. That's why we're here. Got a story for you this morning. A stranger than fiction story. A story that Paul began his letter to the Corinthians, this ancient church in an urban center uh, on Greece. He began with talking about this story, and now he's going to end his letter, chapter 15, with this story. The story is called the gospel. Good news announced to the world. Good news, a story that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, according to the scriptures. Let me read this story to you. And then I want to ask just two questions. What is, what is the story about? What, what is the gospel? And then secondly, what does it mean? If this story is true, what are the implications? All right, here's the story. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll have it on the screens. It's also, if you want to follow along in your chair Bible, it's page 933. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. The word of the Lord. What is the gospel? Well, let's go through those key verses, three and four, word for word, practically here, and understand what this story is. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. We've talked about this before, that in the Greek, uh, which the New Testament was written in, the normal word order of a sentence had the verb first and then the subject. But in this verse three, it has the subject Christ first, and then the verb died second. The reason an author would do that was to put emphasis on that subject. Christ died according to the scriptures. The first word of the gospel is always Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is a unique word. It's actually a a Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It literally means one who is anointed. And it speaks of someone like a king who would be specially commissioned, specially entrusted with authority and power to be the deliverer of his people. A king was anointed. And in this text, we learn that Jesus is God's chosen one, his anointed one to accomplish the mission of saving the world. So why was Jesus Christ the anointed one? Well, first of all, because Jesus is God. There is no one else like Jesus. Jesus is God, fully God. Let's go back to within 20 years of his death and hear what one of his closest followers, the apostle John, was asserting about Jesus. Would you read this out loud to me as we see Jesus' deity together? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then together, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. And then from Jesus' own lips, He makes this staggering claim. Together, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, frankly, it's that kind of language which gets us in trouble in our modern culture. 
to say that Jesus is the only way, that he is the only true way to, to heaven and to know the true God. It sounds narrow. It sounds arrogant. I was listening. Uh, I like to listen to Bill Maher uh, with real time. Uh, when I can, usually on a trip on HBO, we'll watch it because I like to be angry and have my emotions stirred from time to time. Yeah, Bill Hamer is, a, I would argue, one of the most articulate atheists of our time and is worth watching. He has usually a panel of guests on there. And this one particular evening, he had a, a black preacher from the heart of LA on his panel. And the black preacher, they were having a discussion of Christianity. He quoted this verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, as you can imagine, Bill Meyer, he, he blew a gasket. It just went off on this. This is why you Christians are so arrogant, so narrow-minded. I can't stand it. Finally, the preacher backs off and says, hey, look, look, man, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Jesus said it. Within 20 years of his death, you know, Mayer makes the argument often that it was the Christians who came in hundreds of years later and began to put words into Jesus' mouth that he claimed to be God. Uh Uh-uh. Check your history. Check the facts. Within 20 years. And and understand this. Jesus was worshipped as God among the first followers, being Jews in the Jewish worldview While they believed in a coming Messiah, they never believed that a coming Messiah would claim to be the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty. They believed in a Messiah, but they never dreamed it would be a man claiming to be the Lord. Now, what does this say about Jesus, who made staggering claims like this, and yet his first thousands of followers were Jews. He must have been a startling figure. Do you feel the weight of this? In the gospel accounts, there were only three possible responses to Jesus. There were those who knew exactly what he was saying, Another time, for instance, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived 2,500 years before Jesus' time. And that word, I am, is the name of God, the holy name, the unspeakable name. Before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones. It was blasphemy. They hated him. There were others who followed him for a time, heard the staggering, startling claims he made, and decided, even though their head told them it may be true, their heart said, if I really believe this, I'm going to have to change my entire life. And they walked away. They hated him. They walked away or they bowed down and gave him their lives. Those are the options, friends. 
we will have, uh, paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, none of this patronizing nonsense about Jesus being some spiritual guru and reliable teacher. Jesus never left that option open to us. Never. What's your story? Jesus is God. Jesus is man. The same John in a later letter writes this about Jesus. We heard him. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him. Jesus became a person. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. He moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us. He experienced life as we know it, apart from sin. He experienced life. He was hungry. He was tired. He was emotional. He was tempted. He was betrayed. He was hurt. He was killed. He became human for two reasons. He became human so that he could live the life we should have lived. Understand this, that Jesus never said a word of gossip. Can you imagine? He never had an inch of his life motivated by greed. He never cursed a neighbor or cheated a stranger. He lived the fully obedient life required by the Father to have the fitness of living with him in heaven. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life and he did it to grant it to us so that when we say, Jesus, I'm yours, we not only get the forgiveness of the cross, we get the righteousness of his life. And when God looks at us, he says, you're clean, you're justified, you are ready for heaven, not because of your goodness, but because of his. And I give that to you. We are declared righteous and ready for heaven. That's good news, folks. That's quite a story. But he became human, secondly, not only to live the life we should have lived, but to die the death we should have died. He died on a cross in our place for our sins so that everything we've ever done wrong that was short of God's standards could be wiped clean, forgiven, no more an ounce of his infinitely precious blood was enough to take away the sins of the world, those who follow and believe. According to the scriptures, this story has been going on since before the beginning of time. This is a story that's much bigger than ourselves and it's been unfolding an hour at a time. God's story, according to the scriptures, this is an amazing story. Nothing in Jesus' life, nothing in your life catches God by surprise. This is a massively big, can we say, narrated story. Little did they know. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Why did Jesus have to die? Let's be clear. Jesus had to die first because of a devastating four-letter word that describes God, holy. God lives in a burning purity far beyond what we can imagine or experience. He's alive on his own terms and he makes demands of his creation. He is holy, completely other 
than his creation. We, on the other hand, are described by a devastating three-letter word, sin. Now, I know that that word is not popular in our culture either, but I would submit that that word sin is the easiest Christian doctrine to prove, as Chesterton said. Just look around. Sin. We speak words that fall short. We think thoughts that fall short. We hurt people. We're impatient with our children and we deal with our loneliness through promiscuity. And the list goes on. We have fallen down and we are separated. Separated from a holy God. This is the great human problem. You know, one's chooses their religion based on what they perceive to be the greatest problem of their lives. So there are those in our culture who think the greatest problem of our lives is lack of education, lack of knowledge. And so their religion is enlightenment. And if we can just get people educated, we'd fix all the problems of humanity. There are those who think, yeah, we're just not smart enough. There are others who think, well, the problem is we're just not good enough. And what we need is more social reform. And we need more people doing more good. And having that happen in this world, we would save this planet. There are those who think they're not good enough. Well, a Christian comes at this respectfully and saying, yes, we need truth and knowledge and education. And yes, we need social reform and people doing good. But what I need first and foremost as a human being, if anything's going to change my heart, do you know what I need? I need forgiveness. I need a heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh by the grace of God. I need his love planted inside my heart in order to use that knowledge and be that change. I need a savior. And having a savior solves the problem between us and God. Closes that gap. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried, which proves that he died he was buried, and then he was raised to life on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared, and that he appeared proves his resurrection. Verses four through uh, eight, Paul goes on and, and makes much of this, that the proof of Jesus' resurrection was that he appeared to many. He appeared to Peter, Cephas, the 12, 500 brothers and sisters uh, during a 50-day period from his resurrection to his ascension. They're still living. And Paul says, look, you can go talk to them. Nothing to hide here. Go talk to them. Some have died, fallen asleep. More on that in a minute. But most of them are still living. Don't believe me? Talk to them. Don't believe me? Listen to them. Eyewitness testimony in the most historically documented book in the history of the world. Eyewitness testimony. And these people who saw him after, they started to get together. And they didn't just get together to have, you know, dinner and reminisce about the old times. Wasn't that Jesus something? No, they saw him after he died, which meant they went out and they sold their possessions and they changed their occupations and they become part of a big story that had massive influence in their world. The proof of the story is in that he appeared to many it's also interesting to think about these appearances, how radical the resurrection is. You know, it wasn't just resuscitation. 
Jesus coming back. It wasn't like he died and was 45 minutes on the table, saw the light and came back. No, don't deny any of those things happened, but guess what? Those people still die. This is different. This is an eighth day of creation. This is a new humanity with a body that's outfitted for eternity. Listen, the body, first of all, was just not subject to the normal human conditions. The Jews, the early Christians would be in a room and they'd be scared of the Jewish authorities, locked doors, and all of a sudden Jesus would appear in their midst and say, how's everyone doing? Can you imagine? It wasn't subject to the physical limitations, especially death that we're subject to in our current human condition. But not only was it ready for heaven, it was also much of earth. Do you know the most common thing Jesus said when he would meet with people after his resurrection? What's to eat? That makes me very hopeful for heaven. Right? What's to eat? This is still a very physical body outfitted to enjoy physical pleasures that God will still give in his created beauty in heaven. So this is an amazing body, a new humanity that's ready for heaven. But get this, this is the key. The only way to get that new body in that new life is through Jesus Christ. You know, I do a lot of funerals. I'm around dead people a lot and grieving people. And you know what I hear again and again and again? Well, they've gone to be in a better place. That's like American folk religion right there. They have no evidence or no clue about that better place or how to get there. Some of you need to hear this this morning. This is the exact reason why you're here. Listen, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that defines life after death. And there is no other kind of life after death but the one that Jesus initiated. No other kind. The key to life after death in this story is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the gospel, my friends. Here's the story. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day and appeared to many. Amen. That's the story. What does it mean? Two implications. First, this story changes life. Life changes. Look at Paul's own testimony and what happened to him. Verses nine through 11. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I, am perse- I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Paul said at the end of verse eight that he was like one abnormally born. What he meant by that is he was late to the party, right? Jesus appeared to all the first 500 or so witnesses between his resurrection and his ascension, and then he was ascended on high. But Jesus made a special trip down from the right hand of the Father to physically appear to Paul. In other words, Paul missed those 50 days. He was born a little late, late to the party, but Jesus got him anyhow. He was like one abnormally born out of the wrong time, but not only was he born the wrong time, He was the last person you would expect to Jesus make an, for Jesus to make an apostle of, right? Paul hated Jesus. 
He was dragging Christians off to jail. He was holding their clothes while people were killing them. He was using everything in his power to stop the Christian movement. And for whatever reason, Jesus said, Paul, you're the one I want to become the apostle to the Gentiles. That's us, folks. Uh, you, you will be the most influential person in the history of the world second to Jesus. You, you who hate Jesus and you who are killing Christians. I'm telling you, it's the power of this story that changes a terrorist to a missionary. That's the power. That's the potential of meeting the resurrected Jesus Christ in our lives. I'm also here to tell you, if Paul can become an apostle, then there was no one in this room who is beyond the reach of God's mercy. No one. Nothing you've ever done in your lives, no matter how you drag it around, nothing can keep God from loving you and forgiving you. Look, Many of us walked into this room this morning carrying deep burdens and you're walking in gullies of guilt. Paul himself has much regret in this text. But what does Paul do? He takes his regret to the cross of Christ and he stops dragging around his past and he looks forward. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What is he? He's a child of God. At work in the greatest story on the planet. You need to stop dragging around your guilt and your shame and your past burdens. Stop, stop dragging them around. The only one who's holding your sin between you and God is you. God's done with it. Walk on. You are free. You are clear. You are forgiven. That's what changes lives. Not only does life change, but death change. We've called out this little phrase, fallen asleep. The Jews believed in a resurrection. They just had no idea of who could come and turn death into resurrection. Well, Jesus started doing that. And the first time, one of the first times when he was with us on earth was in John chapter 11. He got news that one of his close friends, Lazarus, has died. And he tells the disciples with him, look, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We need to go there and wake him up. Well, the disciples were not at all used to calling death falling asleep. So they said, well, if he's sick, he'll get better, won't he? Jesus said, look, I tell you plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad I wasn't there because now you're going to get to see me raise the dead and you will believe in me. Four days later, they get to Bethany. Jesus walks up to the tomb. He says, roll the stone away. And as soon as he said it, Martha, who is Lazarus' sister and the host of the party comes running up. Master, master, he's been in the tomb four days. It's gonna stink. Jesus, it says, angry. Angry at what the devastation of death does to humanity. Turns from, to, to Martha and says, Martha, I told you that I am the resurrection and the life. And if you trust me, you will see the glory of God. And then he turns to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. That's Lazarus doing the hokey pokey on his grave. That's what it's all about. 
the power of Jesus Christ over death. Changes it from death to sleep. What story are you in? Who's right about death? Jesus or us? I mean, we're the professionals. We know when someone's dead, they're gone. Jesus said, no, he's not dead. He's fallen asleep. When we see death, we see disaster. When Jesus sees death, he sees deliverance. And on this particular occasion, instead of waking Lazarus up in heaven, he wakes him up here again on earth to show that there is more to death than meets our eyes. And if you trust him, death is not the end. It is a transition into life again. Jesus at the funeral asked the crowd, do you believe this? What's your story? Everyone in this room, everyone that you know, believes a story by faith to explain their reality. I'm asking you, what's your story? Is it true? What's your evidence? Today, if you would like to connect your story to the great story called the gospel, to Jesus' story, It's as simple as this. Paul said it, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So as we get ready to dunk some people who are professing this story, would you pray with me? And if you've never before connected your story to Jesus' story, Just say these words quietly in your heart with me. Let's pray. Jesus, I do believe you are Lord. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came to earth to live the life I should have lived and to die the death I should have died. I believe that you forgive my sins. I believe your resurrection promises me eternal life. I will follow you the rest of my days. Amen.